Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Vancouver, British Columbia, out here on the left coast for Congress 2019 and the Canadian Historical Association annual meeting. Getting ready to participate in a couple of panels later in the week, but more importantly than what I'm going to be doing later in the week, it is, of course, the 75th anniversary of D-Day coming up on Thursday, June the 6th. And news coverage is, is all over the place about this. And it started, I just watched a story on the French language news out here in Vancouver. And they were talking to some veterans who were very open about the fact that this is the last major milestone anniversary of D-Day that will include veterans. You know, if you're looking forward in five years, yeah, there will probably be some left. But, you know, 80 doesn't quite have the same place in the imagination as 75th. And if you're looking forward to the 100th in 25 years, of course, there will be no Second World War veterans left at that point. And it really starts to get, you know, gets you thinking about things about living memory and living histories and the importance now of documenting the stories while we can and learning about what these individuals went through and what they experienced so that we have these stories and that we don't lose the memory of what happened over time. And with the tools that we have available to us now, it maybe makes it easier to document these things, but certainly, you know, being proactive about getting these stories, it's, you know, it's certainly a priority for a lot of folks. And it has led to a wonderful new documentary that is premiering on Saturday, June the 8th across the country on Global called D-Day in 14 Stories. And just as the title suggests, it's telling the story of D-Day through 14 individuals and what those experiences were like. So do check your local listings across the country for D-Day in 14 stories. And for our international friends, just go online, Google D-Day in 14 stories, and you will have a chance to, uh, to, to see how you can get that wherever you are listening to the show. You know, and, and as we look ahead to about what D-Day 75 is going to mean, you know, huge crowds over there at the Juno Beach Center. Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody when I was over there in France back in April, and, and they're expecting huge crowds for the 75th on Thursday. Certainly at Omaha Beach and pretty much everywhere along the coast there, there's going to be significant crowds for what happens uh, in terms of the commemorations because D-Day holds such a place in the public imagination of the Second World War and the significance of D-Day, it's, it's really hard to overstate militarily and obviously in the memory of it. It just is such a, a powerful moment in how we remember the Second World War. And I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to talk to one of the veterans who participated in the D-Day landings, Jim Parks, who's a veteran who is featured in the documentary D-Day in 14 stories. I had the absolute honor of speaking to him last week over the phone, and we had to do this in two different segments. And I've been going back and forth on how to present this. We're going to do it 
straight through as I spoke to Mr. Parks. It's not necessarily in a chronological order of what his experience was, but I didn't want to cut anything or rearrange anything from this. I wanted everybody to experience the conversation that I had with him in the order in which we talked about it. He was incredibly generous with his time. I was amazed by his memory. And I, I probably shouldn't have been as amazed by his memory as I was. But he was very open about his experience. As I say, he's, he's featured in the documentary as well. But we, we start by talking about D-Day. Then we go back, talk a little bit about his enlistment experience, why he wanted to enlist. He was underage when he enlisted. Uh, so we talk about that. And then... <laughs> At about the 33, 34 minute mark, the phone went out and we just got disconnected and we could not dis we could not get connected again. So I'll come back and, and explain a little bit about what happened. But this is a conversation that took place in two parts, but I really didn't want to edit anything too hard on this. I wanted to allow the story that Mr. Parks told me and his experience, I wanted to give everybody the opportunity to hear it the way he told it. And I didn't want to edit it in a way that could potentially take away from how he told his story. So that's why I didn't go through and edit anything or rearrange it to make it in chronological order. It, it, this is just how the conversations went. So, Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Second World War veteran Jim Parks. Well, Mr. Parks, uh, to, to get started, I, I'm just curious if you could ex just sort of start off by explaining what your role was on uh, D-Day. I was at the, uh, with the mortar platoon of the uh, Winnipeg Rifles, and uh, our role was to go in at H-2, which is two minutes before the... Uh, before the uh, landing craft with the uh, the infantry companies, mm -hmm. and the landing craft tank that we were on had two armored bulldozers at the front with the engineers, and they had uh, they had ropes attached to the armored bulldozers with uh, with big hooks at the end, and their job was to go in and to uh, hook the uh, the uh, hook onto these big obstacles in the water and drag them out, and. Uh, that would make way for the landing craft to come in. They wouldn't have anything to uh, obstacles to hit. But, of course, that, that didn't happen because uh, timing was off and uh, uh, our boat was hit. And uh, and uh, I think the infantry were a bit later than they should have been. And so we all ended up being uh, being there at the, uh, mixed up about the same time. So when that happened and there's the, the logistical mix-up there, What's happening in your head? Uh, you know, how, how does how do you figure out where to go, what to do? Sort of, what what is your mindset there? Well, we still had to we still had to try to get to get to the shore and uh, and the uh, the bulldozers themselves. They they, uh, they get off and they managed to do something like that. We didn't exactly watch what they did once they got going because we were just concerned with us getting off the boat, but. The, the water was too deep for us because we we're, were, and the boat had been hit and had trouble with the landing with the ramp, because in the front where the, uh, the sailor uh, rolled it down, that's the part that was the, the boat was hit, and 
and uh, when they dropped us off, the water was too deep, and so the, our, our carrier just uh, it just sank. Period. It was about, about ten feet of water, eight to ten feet of water at least, and the water was pretty rough too. You know, mm-hmm. the closer you get to the shore, the more the more uh, turbulent it is. You know, with the waves and so on. So we end up uh, swimming in. I ended up swimming in. I got sideswiped on the way in by one of the landing craft coming in. It sort of a it brushed my shoulder on the left because I didn't know that. All I was concerned about is is getting in the shore because it was fair. I couldn't touch bottom, you know. Right. And uh, so I kept I kept going, and there's one of these big obstacles in the water. I grabbed all of that to get to catch my breath because I'd swallowed a bit of water when I got that flight swipe, and I uh, finally got in the shore and that. Uh, the landing craft had landed, and the people had got off, but a lot of some of the people had been shot up, and so I just, and people, some were lying on the sand, and uh, I didn't know they were just lying for protection or what, but it turns out the ones that were lying on the sand were the ones that were hit, because I popped beside one, and uh, I knew the guy was uh, uh, in a corporal called Scape from uh, Saskatchewan, and uh, I, I said to him, I said something, whatever I said, but he was being badly wounded, and he, he wasn't talking. He ended up uh, later on. We found that he's he bad. He died of wounds that they showed on the on the list. But I I just uh, since I lost all my stuff, I I grabbed this Sten gun and uh, I unhooked his uh, his web his web belt and got the uh, small pack off. You know, right. And I uh, I made my way over to the pillbox and uh, and waited for the rest of the ones of my group come in. Because we were supposed to come in with our motor carriers and set up and and uh, you know pop in a few smoke bombs and so on, but of course uh, having lost the the, the uh, carriers sunk in the water, we just we swam and we lost our mortars and all. So that was our little a little setback for the day, for that part of the day anyway. Right. So did you know? where to go specifically like had you been trained or or been shown photographs and maps and, and these sorts of things so you knew like did you have a rendezvous point that you were trying to to get to once you know you had to swim in yeah we actually landed in the spot we were supposed to land okay yeah well there's, 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 there's a, a series of about five or six pillboxes in a row there's a sewell's river which was on the Sort of split the split the difference between the Regina rifles on the left of it, and we were to the right of it. And immediately, immediately to the right of the Sewell's River was the B Company, which we were attached to, and that's where I landed. And there's a series of pillboxes, one, two, three, four, five, right along there. And we're I was by right by number two pillboxes where, and we landed. Uh, that's that's where we're supposed to land, and that's uh, where we were. So we we pretty accurate were in the area we we're supposed to land. So when, once you get there and, and you're you're on the beach, what is the what is the feeling like? Is it can you describe that at all? You know, with with people around you, as you said, uh, a, a guy you knew who had been injured and, and was wounded on the the ground who you saw, like just are you just just what is that experience like? Well, you're sort of a silver is a scramble because. Uh, I, until I got to the beach, I had nothing left. You know, I was swimming in. We lost our our carrier. We were supposed to come in with the carriers. We all landed there. Everything was supposed to be bombed and shelled out. You know, opposition. But it turned out that uh, everything was still there and still operating. 
because they uh, cut a lot of the uh, boys in the company were were shot up. Uh, I think we lost about 131, 132 on the beach. That we kill, actually killed killed on the beach, you know. Mm-hmm. But quite a few wounded altogether, over 200 altogether, including the killed. <clears throat> so and then the, the rest got through. So, so when, I was on when sorry. I got on the beach. It's, uh, that's as uh, far as I got, I got on the beach because uh, normally we're, once we got on the beach, we're supposed to set up mortars and we we're ready to move inland. But uh, and, and following following that, that'd be the rest of our platoon would be coming in with the rest of the mortars, and they did come in. They were supposed to be about uh, five or six minutes later, and I couldn't tell you exact what time, but uh, they landed right where they should have landed, and. We were all landed in the places we were supposed to be. We weren't drifted off to one side or another. We, the, it was pretty accurate where we were supposed to go, and we uh, that's where you ended up being, you know? So when you get to the beach with uh, and the, the other group is there, so what happens then? So you're laying the mortars down? We didn't. Uh, like I said, the mortars we had, yeah. we, we lost them. Right. We, we, our boat was hit, and the... We uh, we were far enough out when we they dropped the, our mortars off, our our carriers off. It's we sank, the yeah. mortars and all, the carriers and everything all right. went underwater, and we had to swim in. So we had no mortars, no carriers, no nothing. Right. But did the group behind you that you're saying that they landed where they were? Did they have their mortars? Yeah, they did. The other two sections, they were okay. They got all the wind because they weren't. Uh, they didn't hit anything. We were We got hit a miner, and, uh, and something hit, hit the front. Could have been a shell hit the front. It it, uh, it fouled up the landing, uh, the ramp, you know. Right. But the ramp, even though, even though the ramp was there, it, the water was too deep. Once it went off, the first carrier went off, and it sort of floated a bit, and it sort of gradually sank, and the, the fellows jumped off and started to make way in the shore and grabbed onto uh, boxes or whatever was floating and got in. Because I was able to swim a bit and got side-swiped on the way in. So were you were you injured by that? Like severely injured by that? Uh, no, no, I wasn't no? injured. Just that I, uh, I, I could have drowned because I, when I got sideswiped, it pushed me in under, under the water, and I mm-hmm. swallowed. You, you sort of see stars, you know, and you, you, you lose your breath, and I swallowed a lot of water, and it's. Uh, I guess, the, I guess the feeling would be panic feeling, and you, you get up and sort of uh, swam in the shore. It was pretty rough, you know. Yeah. When I say I swam, it wasn't just like a leisurely swim. It was sort of a, it's sort of a scrambly thing. I got to get yeah. in there. I got to get in there, you know. And I gradually, my feet, I could feel my feet touch the sand below, and then I uh, sort of waded and pushed my way in that way, because it was still chest deep, right. and still, still a water coming, still the waves coming in. It was, a, it, felt, it seemed to me it was kind of rough coming in, the waves. Yeah. And was it difficult once you got to the beach, even to to walk? I, I imagine with all the water, with everything being wet, it would have been quite heavy and difficult to move around. I never never thought about being wet, or they said, "Was it cold?" I said, "I don't remember being cold or wet. I just remember just got to the beach and then uh, uh, plopped down beside that Scorpel Scaife. He'd been a, one of the rifle companies, but uh, he'd been working wounded. That's right. when I got a stem gun and undid a small pack." Because he didn't need that anymore. So how and long? I made, made over to the pillbox, and a few were yeah. scattered by the pillbox. We waited there. We knew our, our rest of our our group would be coming in, and uh, 
And what they did is they, uh, as Bob Hussey and I were from our section, and our driver, our driver for the carrier, he ended up uh, a combo box is a food box, but it floated. He grabbed onto that, and then he he got picked up by the Navy, and he came back a day or a day or two later. He joined us two three later. So we didn't we didn't have any uh, any mortars. We had no carrier, and we had nothing. So they spread us among the other other two sections. The section would be two would be two two mortars, right? Two carriers. Right. We had six all together, and we our our, our two we lost. Yeah. So how how long were you on the beach then? Once once you had the the gun and you got to the pillbox, how long were you on? Oh, the... I couldn't tell you the exact time, but we weren't there very long. And I the uh, when our because our platoon commander come in and and then the uh, there was what you call a tactical headquarters of our brigade come in, mm-hmm. and there's a sergeant major who's a who's normally a sergeant major with us, but he was assigned to the he signed to the brigade headquarters. And they, they uh, since I was available, they needed a runner. So they, I was assigned to him to do some running. You know what a runner does? He runs messages, eh? Yeah. The only thing is, I lasted about an hour and I got sick because I swallowed a lot of that water. Right. And, uh, and the, uh, the sergeant major, I knew him anyway from Winnipeg. He was a Winnipeg policeman, and he used to be in our area, and he was also in our unit a lot of time. And he just said, uh, he, he used to call me Parksy. He says, well, you get over there, and he said, just see what you have to do. And I, I brought up a lot of seawater, and he said, rejoin the platoon. So as soon as I felt better, I, I looked around for him, and I found the, found our group, and the, uh, at the, I was assigned to one of the other one of the other mortars, an extra person. There was, so we ended up with about uh, six extra people who were spread among the other, the other two sections. And so, and, and those were guys who... You had been with before, and and so you were all just sort of divided up amongst other mortar groups. Yeah, yeah but then they, but then they assigned, but then they needed somebody. That's when they, at the same time they, uh, they needed somebody for a runner, and that's when they, uh, I, yeah. I got assigned. They said the, they said Parksy, report to the report to Sergeant. Uh, uh, I know his, his name will come back to me in a minute, and they so I went back to him and. But that's when I did the running, and I got that sick about the seawater. And he said, "Rejoin my, rejoin my platoon," which I did. Hmm. I found them, and I, I just hopped on the back with the, with the, stayed with them for the, uh, the rest of the day. In fact, I stayed with them the next two, three days. We never, we never got a mortars, any mortars equipment back for about, uh, for about at least a week or so. Okay, so so at the end of the day, then as you say, you were with these guys for the next couple of days. Yeah. Like how like how, how did you or did you know at the time what the what the events of that day meant in the larger scope of the war? Were you conscious of that? Well, not at the time. We we knew we were part of the big part. We knew there was a big uh, uh, taking a lot of the shore, and we knew there was a the eighth brigade was over in our left, and the seventh brigade was we were here. And we knew the uh, Regina was on our left. We knew the the overall the overall picture. We knew pretty good because they they um, we had what they call exercises, and they showed the sand table, and they didn't actually have names. They had they had fictitious names for the targets. They had orange and apple. They had it all all uh, orange, apple, peach, and that sort of thing for the names of the uh, of the locations. Uh-huh. 
ignored it because it, for security reasons. Right. We didn't know those until we got on on the boat, and we knew we were going to France. We knew we knew we were going to France anyway, but we we didn't know where. Then they give us uh, ten francs and uh, in money. Uh-huh. It's a, they didn't give them to me because it's deducted from your pay, of course, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be free, and so they they gave us that. So I ended up with that. That was in my pocket, so that was okay. Yeah. So were you, were you able to spend that money? I can't remember. There's a lot of stuff we got there. Didn't have to didn't have to buy anything. We had a lot of our own food, and we later on with the guys would be playing cards. A few weeks later or so, and you'd maybe use it to gamble playing cards or something because you couldn't buy anything unless you. A canteen, then you maybe buy something at a canteen, but we never had a canteen for a long time. Then you had to be back at the lines to find a canteen. Right. And we never, we never got back at the lines. I think we were in uh, in action for fifty six. He said fifty six days before they brought us, we got relieved. Wow, that yeah. that seems like a, an extremely long time. Well, yeah, apparently it was at the time, but but uh, but you know your 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 reserve group and then your because we the mortars, you're never really you're you're mixed up with the companies, and you get, you got to be back about a hundred yards or two hundred yards back because if you if you stop popping bombs, you're bringing down fire on them. So they didn't want you around. So you made sure you got a couple. And we 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 didn't mind being about a couple hundred yards back, you know, because you get behind a a fold in the ground or behind a house or something, you know, yeah. get some protection from the machine gun fire that way. Uh, now, now you mentioned that you didn't know specifically where you were going when you got on the boats um, or until you got on the boat. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what it sounded like on the boat? Was, were people talking? Were people, you know, or, or what was it quiet? Do you remember any sounds as you were, were in the boat? Yeah, we were on a landing craft tank and we had two armor bulldozers in front and we had two sections of mortars. Now a section of mortars is, is two carriers each, and we had a trailer. The trailer had an extra uh, load of rations and an extra load of uh, of uh, ammunition. And they had uh, they gave us some loaves of bread in a sack, and they said it was uh, it was it'd be good for 21 days. And uh, I'll never forget this. And you laugh at this. I said, "Well, how do you know it's going to last with 21 days?" He said, "Well, it's laced with formaldehyde." <laughs> Keep it fresh. <laughs> we don't know. They could do that, you know. You would know that. Yeah, and if it's if it's preservative, it just so happens to preserve bodies too. But uh, maybe they preserve bread as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we so, never we lost no. all that stuff until we lost that the the second night in there. We got over overrun. We we got stuck out there, and and uh, they're all around us, and. Uh, we took off and we left the carrier behind, and the carrier had all the bread in and the extra ammunition. And so uh, we just got away in time. We thought, okay, we'll get it when we go. We, we take the ground the next day. We'll find the we'll find the uh, the food and the ammo, but it was all gone. I guess the Jerry's got it too. Eh? They right. they found the bread, and so they would make use of it. Hmm. Yeah. Were you were you ever scared though? Well, you have that. You, you have that. Uh, you, you are concerned. You know, it's a, it's a scared feeling of apprehension. You know, you know, you're always worried about whether 
it's, uh, but you look to support by being together, you know? Hmm. If you're being together and it's not, con- it, if you're scared, it would be contagious, it would be spread around everybody. You're, you're worried, but there's always, a, there's always somebody that's, uh, that's uh, we had a pretty level-headed guy called, we used to nickname him Hopalong Cassidy because he looked like he was from the Peace River District up in the, up in the north uh, west of Alberta, and he was a sort of a cowboy. He'd been worked on a cattle ranch and so on. Uh-huh. He was a pretty pretty uh, pretty cool customer, and he'd he'd talk with a sort of a a bit of a slow talk, and he, he was sort of like a mentor to the rest of us in a lot of ways. And he never he seemed to be, he never got followed up on any of that stuff. You seem to be more cool, more cool, and that sort of became contagious. Because after a while, you get sort of a, uh, I guess you become uh, wary of what's going on. You know which uh, which shells are coming close and which aren't, and and uh, what machine gun fire where it's coming from and how to keep away. If you last long enough, you learn a lot of those things. And can I ask you too, Mr. Parks? When did when did you enlist? I enlisted in 1940. Okay. Yeah, in in Winnipeg. Yeah, in Winnipeg. I was I, I was underage at the time when I I uh, I enlisted. I'd, I'd been in cadet, so I knew all the drills, and uh, and I'd uh, I'd been in the region. They had the uh, reserves, and I'd been in reserves uh, all for a bit, and then they came along and they had what they call a selective service certificate, and they issued that to every every civilian over each teen, age eighteen. So they took the nominal role of our unit, and they made a uh, selective service certificate for everybody and issued it to us. So when they, somebody, they, when I was when I was recruited, they said any proof of age. I had no birth certificate, but I had my selective service certificate. And the sergeant who knew me from the cadets and other ones, he he said, "Well, that's okay. He's got a Jim's okay. He's, he's you have to be 18 to have the certificate." And he, he winked at me, you know. <laughs> what made you want to enlist, especially since you were underage? Like, what was your pri- what was your motivation? Well, you know, we we'd been cadets in, in the in, uh, you know like in the 30s. We'd been cadets, and we knew a lot about World War One. And my dad had been in that, and the different neighborhoods, uh, the, their dads had been in it, and and, the, and the, it seemed like an adventurous thing to do. And all the neighborhood kids, even a lot of the a lot of the boys were 17, 16, and a lot of them, at that time, they, they they got away with it. It was early in the war. They got the first time, the first year or so, you got they got away with it, and they joined up. The guys were 18, 19, 17, and so they, my brother had been a, a year and a half older. He got in, so if he can get in, I can get in. So I just laid about my age and so on, and I got in. Where did you initially train? Where where did that take place? Right in right in Winnipeg. And I look at the pictures of the of our troop, and I say to myself, "Geez, you know, you look at a few of us guys. You didn't fool anybody. How <laughs> you how young you look? You said, well, geez, you know, we didn't fool anybody.'" <laughs> <laughs> and at what point did you head to Europe? When were you deployed? Well, I was in in Winnipeg. We we were there for about a. Oh, for about ten months, and they—we they, uh, were in a, a depot, and they needed uh, rain. The, the unit that I was posted to, the, their, the third div, they were—they were doing what they call uh, 
get rid of the sick, lame, and lazy. Uh, in other words, going through to make sure that everybody was uh, was healthy. And then they needed people to replace it, so they, they came to our Fort Ogden Barracks, and there were about 600 of us being trained there. And we were all seconded down to Camp de Bern, Nova Scotia, and, and uh, di- distributed among the units there. And I, I was distributed to the Winnipeg Rifles. And they, I, I was on a troop train with, uh, there were 60 on the troop train, and we, uh, we come from Winnipeg right to, uh, right to Camp de Bert. And that was a, we, they attached it, they actually with a troop train, they had two coaches, and the coaches were attached to the regular Dominion, which was a Trans-Canada, uh, CNR Trans-Canada train that went by every, every 24 hours, they had a new, tra- a tra- a Trans-Canada train would go across they put our, our two coaches on on the back and we end up having uh, special times for our meals because we had regular customers on the train so so really it wasn't a troop train later on troop trains come in right yeah but that was a that was an adventure itself of going down the going down from winnipeg to uh to, to nova scotia because mm-hmm. we'd stop yeah. at different division points and uh we had one fellow with us, so he always seemed to find out where all the booze was, and he'd he'd always come back. He was a, he was a type of guy that uh, a big lumberjack fellow called McIver, and he uh, he carried his miniature Bible, and he used to be uh, sort of religious, but he 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 liked to he'd always seem to find the the, the beer and the, and the liquor, and he was always in a good mood. And if he got in a good mood, and he, he, he'd take out his miniature Bible, and if yours happened to be standing somewhere, he'd, he'd just uh, nail you, and he'd start preaching to you. He's such a big guy, you wouldn't resist that, you know? Right. Yeah, he started to preach, and so he always had put that Bible out, and he started preaching to you. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they actually caught him at a place in the a division point somewhere in Nova Scotia. They stopped, and they... Uh, and they, 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 they were late in leaving. So what's the matter? He said, "Well, there's a soldier in front. There's a sent a provo corps. They can't. He won't get out of the way to the train." So we went down to see who it was. It was this guy McIver? He was preaching to the train with his Bible. He's standing in front of the train and preaching. You know, and the, the train was a steam engine and it's hissing and puffing away. And he was just. And they sent for the provo corps, but we uh, we managed to coax him back into the. Uh, into the train, we said there, there are few princes, patricians there that need more religion than the than the train. So he he came along and just before the MPs arrived, you know. <laughs> um, so when you when you're first deployed, where did where were you first uh, deployed to? Where where were you in, in action? Yeah. Oh, we are on the uh, DD landing. That yeah. was your first. That was your first. That's the first day. The first landing was a first exposure to action was on D-Day. Yeah, yeah. It's a, did I already talked about? Didn't I? Or did yeah. I? You, yes. No. You, no. You did. Um, so I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that was your first action. It was. Yeah. Because wow. we did a lot of training before then, and see, they tried to keep the Canadian Army to me. They didn't want to break them up, and they finally ended up doing that by sending a. Uh, the first division and the fifth division to Italy, right? Yeah, to Sicily first. Yeah, uh, was the first div, and later on they sent the fifth div. So they, they, that's when they. Otherwise, they uh, they were the, the Brits were always wanting one of the, the Canadians, but the uh, 
politicians know we want all the Canadians to stay together, but they finally end up breaking them up. So, Each. so then after, so, so with everyone, as you said, so there were some in Italy, then you were obviously at the D-Day landing. Afterwards, you know, you, you mentioned that you, you were sort of separated from your group for a few days. To, it took a while for everyone to get back together. You didn't have mortars. Yeah. You mentioned for about a week. Um, so following D-Day, what what were you tasked with, and what was your? I saw the uh, one of the other mortar sections, and then we end up in a place called Puto, P-U-T-O-T. Two days later, and we that's when the Germans put in the counterattack, and we got overrun. Mm-hmm. Uh, every some spots was every man for himself. You look around, and uh, a guy from Charlie Company, uh, uh, in his little edge of the village, and a. And I, I, I asked him, where's the rest of the company? He says, he says you can't go. He says, uh, they're all being, they all being rounded up, and it's every man for himself. So, we, so I just joined him and went back to there's a farm about 300 yards behind, and that's another unit was there as a, a backup, and uh, that's where I ended up going. And they put it in a counterattack, and they retook the uh, village. But we lost a lot of, uh, quite a few of the guys made it back to that farm. When I got there, there already was uh, there already was a few from Charlie Company because Charlie Company was one of the original ones that was uh, they were able to sneak in because of the uh, the green field was three or four feet high and they were you you couldn't tell where they were you know they sort of uh, first thing you know they're they're infiltrated in, into the uh, into the battalion uh, into our grounds and we didn't have. We, did, we weren't in really what you call a good position because you take up a firing point and all you could see was high grass. It, was, it wasn't very good. They should have been really back in the village and overlooking the big fences, and then that way you could see better. But this is all uh, looking back in hindsight, eh? Right. Because we were stuck out in the open. Yeah. And then after that, was it... So, so after that day, after that counterattack... Then, then what? Then what happened? What, what was your next? Task? Well, our next move was the. Uh, we uh, we ended up back with the uh, with our back with a, a mortar headquarters for our group. Then they spread us. They spread us around again with the other sections until we, the idea was to stay together uh, because we're already trained. They didn't want to split us up until we got uh, new mortars and new carriers because we expected to get them in a matter of a day or two, but it took about. Of more than two weeks or three weeks before we got a set. First of all, they get to give us a 1500 weight truck, and they give us mortars. And then about two weeks later, they took the truck away and gave us a carrier. But mm-hmm. for a while, we were but before we got any of this stuff. They spread us among the other mortars, and we were uh, either if we weren't helping them, they had us do, doing some other duties. The, uh, the battalion headquarters would have us uh, need somebody. We'd get us to do something. Do you remember where you were on uh, Victory in Europe Day? Victory in Europe? Oh, let's see. Uh, VE Day, right? Yes. A place called Emsden, E-M-S-D-E-N. And we knew that a few days ahead of time that uh, the Germans were going to surrender. And so what they did, uh, I had a sergeant by that time, and we sergeants had a in our orders, we had a, uh, a pair of field glasses, and we had a compass, and uh, what else? We had something else, and a watch. And so, 
two, three days before the, we knew the surrender was coming, they had us turn them in. We had to turn in the field glasses, the watch, and the uh, the other one, the, uh, the glasses. Uh-huh. Because if so they, what they were worried about, uh, they'd, be, they'd be losing them. People would be selling them or something like that, you know? Right. But the Canadian Army had a very narrow mind of the, of the people. So they come <laughs> along, so grab, take them away from them because they may... So what they ended up, they, what they ended up doing is they ended up giving them to the Dutch and the other people anyway. Or mm-hmm. took them, in, and a lot of them, a lot of that stuff was destroyed, right? Right. Yeah, because it would uh, didn't want to put it back in the market because uh, the industry be uh, would lose out. So they, uh, they destroyed a lot of that stuff. Right. Did you celebrate on on VE Day? I was can't. There... We didn't really see these. We were we were uh, in a in a hut. In a, we took over a, a, a sort of a, a abandoned house, and we we used that as our headquarters. And we uh, we got the, we got our rations, and we were able to cook our own rations because we had a we had our Tommy cooker, and we we played cards there. And we didn't do anything. Uh, we had to, we had pickets. We had pickets out, uh, like you know you know picket is a guard duty. So okay. to guard our equipment and so on, we had two of those always on twenty-four hour duties there because, so we wouldn't get uh, lose any of that stuff. We still had our we still had our ammo and our mortar bombs and everything else, and so uh, we had them for quite a while afterwards. Hmm. But see, just the other technical equipment like watches and compasses and that we didn't and field glasses. Right. Uh, they were they wanted to take they uh, they figured we flogged them. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. They didn't trust us with them. Right. They would lose a lot of them, so they, they, uh, the the brain waves up in the headquarters. They had ways of doing those things. They, first thing they do, turn them in. Right. Uh, and, and how long was it before you went home? Oh, let's see. September. Okay. Yeah, September 45. Okay. Yeah, we and... got that. It actually, they, they had the priorities or something in the... I was in what they call the 954. Oh, you remember that now? 954 draft. And I, uh, I use that number uh, even now for th- different things. And uh, and there's a mixture of everybody. It was depending on your priorities. Your name was thrown in the hat somewhere. And I end up uh, uh, with a group of different people from different units. And I end up with, a, ever hear of a guy called any Dynamite James? I have not, no. Well, I'll tell you, back in the... Back when the football days in the in the forties and th- late thirties, they had a guy that was a fullback, and his name was James, and they called him Eddie Dynamite James. He was built; he's about five foot ten, about four foot wide. You know, building like a fire hydrant. Yeah. But see, that was his nickname, Dynamite. So I was ended up with him and different. We ended up uh, a different group group of guys. Uh, uh, Al Vickery uh, ended up with him. He was a, a representative of the Canadian press. I don't know how he ended up with all the infantry guys and artillery guys, but uh, he ended up being in our draft, you know. And uh, we had the uh, the nine five four draft. Was, uh, each draft was about two hundred and twenty people, and uh, they, 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 I guess they just uh, allocated drafts to different boats. And I ended up back in England, and we're waiting around. We're supposed to have gone for a certain time, and uh, and I, I enjoyed that time in England because. Uh, 
we finally, because when, when I got my hooks, my three sergeant hooks, it was a, you didn't have much primitives when you're over in, in France and Germany and those places. But we got in England, we were in the regular barracks and uh, all the privileges a senior own NCO has, you know. Yeah. And the first thing you know that the, the, the drafts were supposed to wait for three months and then they, I was on leave and they, a notice coming across that... Uh, We'd report back for duty, otherwise we'd we'd lose all our uh, our pay, uh, what they call a deferred pay. Because what they did when we were overseas, they kept half of your pay uh, and just gave you half the spend, and the other half was kept for what they called deferred, so we give it to you on discharge. So with that, the call dropped, and I could not get back in touch with Mr. Parks that evening. Fortunately, though, he was gracious enough to agree to speak with me again to follow up on what we had talked about, and our conversation moved more into the post-D-Day period where he was stationed, what he went through. He, he talked about a hospital stay that he had, also how he and his fellow service members felt about the Germans. So our initial conversation that you just heard, that took place on Friday, May the 24th, and what you are now about to hear is our follow-up discussion, which took place on the evening of Monday, May the 27th. So once again, here is Jim Parks. In the months, in the months after the war, you know, after you land at uh, at Juno Beach, there, yeah. w where was your next stop? It's the next stop. It's uh, well, we stopped at the uh, with the Puto was the next big one. That was June the eighth. Okay. We we got overrun there by the 12th SS, and we lost about uh, our total casualties altogether is about 260, killed, wounded, and captured. And that's where they uh, when they captured, they they murdered 58 of our boys, eh? The uh, SS, and that's where Kurt Meyer was uh, was uh, what, what they call it the war war grave the commission after the what they call it when they uh, get these guys uh, for doing the war war crimes, yeah. Oh, Kurt yeah. Meyer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they murdered 58, and apparently he was guilty, and something happened, and then he was, uh, it was supposed to be a shot or something, and then it was sort of a, it was dismissed by uh, Chris Folks, the major general. That's that's normally the, that's a routine. Eh? When you get generals, trying generals, you never shoot them. You you give them a, you, you, whatever you make the, the supreme decision. He always uh, remanded down to something else, and and he apparently what he ended up doing somewhere that we heard later on, he was up in the northwest territory on, on that highway, the big highway, what is it leads up to Alaska, and he was planning the defense of uh, of Canada uh, if Russia invaded. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, we heard that way back when. Yeah, hmm. so, but uh, I never seen it written down anywhere because I never bothered writing it, reading it, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. So, 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 how did you feel? Like, what was the reaction of, of the guys when you hear about the murder of the the your compatriots, really, by the SS? What was what well, the reaction there? We were pretty annoyed by it, you know, like uh, ticked off, and uh, and then the, uh, we had a, they said to uh, the uh, information we got down there was that there wasn't to be any retaliation. You know, this uh, this is a. This is a war crime, etc., etc., whatever the words were, and uh, it, was, it was expected that there would be no retaliation, and all prisoners would be treated according to the Geneva, whatever they call it, convention. Yes. Yeah. 
words to that effect, eh? Right. I remember them because I remember the warning come out to to that because we we didn't get the uh, opportunity to pick up prisoners, and they didn't want the uh, retaliation. If you caught them, you'd start you know one thing after another, and it'd be uh, it'd be contagious, you know. Right. Yeah. Did, did that change the way though that you approached your job? Within the the service, did did it give you? I, I hate to say more motivation, but what? Even though you can't take revenge sort of outside the rules of of warfare, is there sort of this desire to you know get them? We thought we. I think the reaction was generally that we got to be tougher because these are, these are tough guys. You know, these are these are we're running against people who are who had no respect for for the uh, you know surrender and they would sort of shoot people and all that sort of jazz, you know. So there was, right. uh, we didn't have any, uh, this, this let us know that uh, that all the prisoners would be treated according to, uh, there'd be no uh, hostile violence, violence towards prisoners. Words to that effect, eh? How did you talk about the Germans, though? Did you, you know, was there, did you make jokes? Did you hate them? Or did you talk about them even at all? Did they, they come up when you're sort of back and, you know, eating or, or playing cards, whatever you do on your downtime? Did, did you talk about them? We, what we talked about is what they did and what the, uh, you know, like uh, how they would, uh, and if, if you, when we took over someplace, you know, went forward and you, you, you just chased them out and you just, uh, Talked about what you found. Uh, the rifles were lying around, and what to do to watch for the, uh, the booby traps and that sort of thing. But there was—I uh, can't remember being this far back. Any uh, any uh, hatred that you just sort of mowed them down, eh? that type of thing. Right. Yeah. So did you by that. chance? Oh, sorry. Did you by chance have anybody on uh, that that you were serving with who was of German descent, who had German oh. parents or grandparents? Oh yeah, there's Pete Enns. Uh, he was a Mennonite. He was a he was originally a Mennonite from southwestern Manitoba. And this, uh, he could speak German and uh, and was as good as he could speak English. But he was can he was Canadian, right? So, right. but he was a German speaking. We we had two or three others, but I can't recall him. I remember Pete because we used to. He reminded us a cowboy at the time, uh, Hopalong Cassidy. So his nickname was Blondie or Hoppy. You know, <laughs> that's the nickname we gave him. Yeah. He's a good-looking so, guy. A good-looking guy, about uh, about five eleven, uh, one hundred ninety pounds. That sort of thing, you know. So everyone trusted him. There wasn't this sense of, well, he speaks German. He's a Mennonite. Maybe we should be leery of him. There was none well, of that. No, he figured his, he had the Canada badge in the shoulder. He's one of the boys, and uh, you come in, he just accepted the way the guy was. You didn't think about his background. You might have heard about it later on, but you didn't yeah. think about it later. You didn't think about it. Like uh, like off like offhand, like I'm just trying to get the name of the guy, but it's just it just won't come to my mind at the moment. The guy that come from the uh, from the Mennonite place. Well, Pete Enns originally his family way back when had been in the Mennonite colony in southwestern Manitoba. So after you're you're inland and and there's the the murder of the 59 guys. Uh, so what, what's your next step after that? Where, where are you deployed to from there? Oh, yeah, we, we sort of went to, uh, uh, we sort of, uh, our next big step would be at Carpique Airfield in the first three or four days of, uh, of uh, July. And okay. that was a real, that was a real battle, you know, it's, uh, 
we called it a hellhole. You know, that was I remember that was real hellhole because we were dug in, but there was the they were they had their their more than nipple. You know, the molding minis. You heard of those? Eh? No, what yeah, are those? The six-barreled motors, motors, rocket propelled, 125 pounds each. And when the rockets went off, you know, they just six of them spread around, and they'd spread out, and they're 125 pounds each. And they, uh, it caved in our trench. It landed close enough that it caved in our trench. And another one that's landed uh, far enough that the concussion was uh, was really bad. But the but the one where they caved in the trench, we we dug right in because we could really hear it. We, we sort of got crouched or near the bottom. It's a good thing we did because. Uh, we, although we had the parapet, it uh, the shells or uh, the fragments would come through the dirt, and it came through the top six inches of our trench because it's that close, eh? Right. Yeah. And f- were you, w- when that happened, were you concerned that you were in mortal danger, or did you feel secure that you had had that trench? Well, it wasn't. You wouldn't have any individual things like that. It was a whole moment. Right. You're in the trench, and you're saying you crouch at the bottom and hoping, to, hoping the grace that wouldn't hit you. You know, right. it was. We say it close, like Bob. Bob, my Bob Hussey was my trench partner, and he, he was always quick, quick talking and so on. And that was Jimmy Close to me. That's Jimmy Close, and it got so bad. He said the only way we're going to take. Get out of here, street first. I remember him saying that. You know, wow. that was at that time because it it was really uh, we had shelled so much and was so close, and it did like a cave in the trench. And I got ran, I got rattled a bit, and uh, it was uh, it was really bad. You know, when, yeah. it, when it really you can imagine how they felt because we we sent twice as much over to them as we did to, they sent to us. So they they were really they must have really been rattled. Yeah, did you ever think of that? You know, you you say that now that you know they must have been rattled on the other side. While you were doing it, did you ever think of what the other side was experiencing, or was it more we're doing our job? This is what we have to do. Like, or, or were you conscious of what was happening over on the other side? Well, we were thinking. I thought they we thought that they had already uh, there's going to be a, there was an attack put in. And we thought they'd already taken care of all that stuff, but you know when they moved back, they they moved their uh, they used to move their artillery and mortars around. They didn't leave them in the same place, and they they used they could use uh, very they were very effective, and they knew the ground too because they'd been on the ground before for right. three years, eh? Yep. And they knew the ground pretty well, and they uh, they could just pick a something on the map and and they zero in right from the map, you know the number of yards it was and so on. And then put, set the uh, set the what they call the uh, the sights that way, mm-hmm. and it would, they could crank it in because they knew, they had an idea. And set, especially orchards, most people most time we end up be, being in orchards, and uh, they, the orchards were their favorite place to shoot. So so we a lot of times we found out we just had to try to get away from the orchards, you know, by 50 yards or so either side, because they they picked the uh, the, or, the orchards were their favorite place. To, to fill their um, shells, especially the mortars. They use their mortars a lot. The, the 88 they use, which is a, uh, which is the, uh, you know what an 88 is, a gun, right. 88 millimeter gun, uh-huh. and it's a high velocity. It was really originally, it's a, it's an ac, ac, ac gun, 
and that they can fire any tank, candy tank uh, shells, or they can fire regular. And they're, and most when they did fire them, they fired air burst, so they explode over your trench, about okay. 30 feet above, and the shrapnel would come down. So what you had to do is, uh, is try to cover your trench in the middle, so you protect it from any shrapnel coming down. Hmm. That way you leave a hole in each end, right? Right. Yeah, and you you do your best to try to find in a neighborhood houses and barns and just rip off boards and fences or whatever. There weren't many fence fences because they're all stone, but the the gates were. So you rip off the gates and rip off the uh, rip off the boards and uh, use that for the center or or rip off a door or somewhere. You don't know, cover that up. Right. So I always found well, something. Yeah. Well, is that so? With with what you were talking about, is that why the orchards were so popular with the Germans? Is that why they felt it was so effective? Because they had that type of weaponry. Well, it's a good weapon. It's a they're they're that Nebelwerfer, which is the one I told you about, the six barrel yeah. mortar rock propeller. That was one of the most effective motor uh, method of firing. Artillery is okay, but mortars you you, you you got a high trajectory and they come down straight, right? Or, right. or a small angle where. Or, or an artillery piece, you're firing at uh, you're firing at an angle, 30 degrees or 40 degrees off the ground, and it's coming over. But the other one goes up and comes down, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the mortar does. So okay. the chances of hitting the trenches and it, it can fire, you can fire and go over the house. It, nothing will stop it because you can fire it so it'll land in the yard behind the house. Right. Because it goes not. <clears throat> I could say just for example. It's not going straight up. It's going up at an angle and at a high trajectory, and then it comes down. Usually, depending on the range, it's, uh, any, it could be anywhere from 18 to 20, 25 seconds from the time you fire it. And sometimes, you, you could, a lot of times, you can actually get, you can hear pop, 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 the firing. You can hear the high in the, fire in the mortar. So you had, a new, you had 18 to 20 seconds. So if they're firing in your area, make sure you're covered up. Now, you mentioned part of that covering up was getting anything you could from the surrounding area. Yeah. Were, were, did you, as you were doing that, were there any civilians left in the well, areas some, where you were? Some of them, they seemed to want to hang around because they, they could sort of, uh, in that area in Normandy, there was, uh, everything was stone. There was no wooden houses or anything else. Everything was stone houses and stone walls and fences and so on. So they were, they were pretty well protected. They they knew where to get in the equipment shed or so on and so forth. Not saying there weren't any casualties because there were. Right? Did did they did you interact with civilians as you were going through at all? Well, some of the guys could speak French and we could we could a bit. We the interaction wasn't that much because we were more in around our trenches, and the only people who would be in the, in the farmhouses would be maybe your headquarters or somebody like that or. or Doing headquarters, of, and they were you know, ourselves. We'd be uh, further out in our trenches. Right. Yeah, and there was some, some interaction, I guess, at the uh, especially with the, the, the wells. You know, you try to make sure that if you want to use the water from the wells, you know, as long as the farmer was using it, you know, it was okay. Because they they always say you watch the wells we poison, but the fire. I can't remember any Germans poisoning any wells in all that time I was there. I can't remember that. Okay. If there was, I, I never heard about it. Okay. Um, now, you, you mentioned, too, that when we talked on Friday that as this is all going on, I think you were, I think you said, I think the number was 59 uh, days in a row. 
but I, it could even have been longer than that, that you were sort of on duty. 56. Did, 56. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. Thank you. Um, now, how did you, did, did you have any downtime within that 56 days? Like, did, was there times where you and the guys were, you know, maybe playing cards or just chatting or, or was there any downtime in that? You, you, you rotate back and there were some, there were sometimes when you, the, um, they take you back for, we took us back for shower twice. Right. Yeah. The mobile showers. Okay. And that's when, that's when they, they started the shell and the, the, ma the major general, he was over there. He was there too. Uh, just, to, I guess, just to say hi to the boys and all that sort of stuff. He was there half an hour before we were. And he started the shell and he ran and he apparently jumped into the trench and there's two guys already in there and he jumped, he jumped on top <laughs> of them. It's, it's, that story became only in the, in the Maple Leaf. The Maple Leaf was the uh, newspaper they printed for the for the military over there. Okay. And if you're lucky, you got a copy. We we seldom got copies, but it was in there. Okay. <laughs> Same as they put chocolates out. The victory, you know, the victory chocolates. Uh huh. They came out the post to all soldiers. You know when yeah. I first saw them? When? A year ago in Holland, they they had them out. They made in Toronto, and these guys showed us all of it. I just said, "Is that what they look like?" <laughs> <laughs> we never it never got down as far as us. A lot a lot of stuff maybe would be wouldn't get all the way down to the infantry units. Right. You know, well, it wouldn't it wouldn't happen that way. Well, like what what like what would make it then? I mean, if if you were lucky to get a newspaper, you didn't get any of the victory chocolates. I mean, what sort of stuff did you get? Well, we uh, the only way you can get it is somebody somebody escorted that stuff down. Because along the way, you know what the troops are like and what military is like. This, this stuff could, same as those cigarettes used to be, come over in packages of 300. Uh -huh. And uh, we had some sent over to us. I didn't smoke, but if I got the packages, which were 12, 25s, I could sell them and make a good a few bucks or a few pounds for my uh, for my uh, leave, right? Right. And a lot of times, that they, I know they said we, my, they, it was three dollars. I know two, three times that they sent them from home, but uh, they never, we never got them. They disappeared along the way, <laughs> and they said, "Well, oh, it happened on a boat." And there's different reasons they had for, for the, but some got filtered through, and when the guys got them, they they uh, they spread them about. They, they maybe sold them for a shilling or two, you know. Right. That's but if they didn't, if the other guys didn't get them. We we asked we asked our parents to send them, but at that time they found it a little tough themselves to uh, to to spend three bucks on and, and uh, all that for the to send it over. That was back in the war years, right? right. And it was uh, they they had a tough going, so they they would just occasionally spend the money to uh, send the cigarettes. They knew we didn't smoke when we just we time of the letter go over. We say we tell them that, that we're using the cigarettes to sell in order to get money for our leave, you know. Right, right. And so they, I am getting three packages sent over, and I end up getting one. Okay. I remember that. No more than three. Right. And and you were able to use the and the money for a leave. Oh, what did they, yeah. For when you when you're on leave, because all you got yeah. is two two pound ten a month. Right. And you got a you got a forty eight hour leave. Uh, and you're allowed a ninety leave every three months. So you got a one forty eight every month, and. Uh, you had to buy your uh, your abolition stuff, your your shaving gear, your soap and toothpaste and that sort of stuff. 
And so you did your best to save what you could to, uh, in order to... Uh, they used to have the post office savings bank over in England, you know. This is where mostly that happened. Because once we got on the problem over the, in France, it, uh, we, didn't, we didn't worry about money. Unless we captured a prisoner, then we took the we took the francs off them or whatever they had, you know. Right. Yeah, you know so, the. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you a little on the side. There's there's one officer I met. He was our he was our paymaster when the reserve force downtown Toronto in the signaling unit. He was also a paymaster during the war years, and uh, you he could trade the uh, say the Dutch money and get the equivalent of pounds back. English pounds, but you didn't didn't get a good rate. So he was collecting all his guilders, what they call the Dutch guilders. Mm-hmm. And what he, instead of him cashing and putting in the bank, he was buying insurance. So when he come back, he had a, a big nest egg of insurance which he cashed in. Oh, how about that, eh? But no, yeah. a lot of a lot of people knew that uh, knew that, but not uh, down on the ranks. We didn't know that, but I. I found out later because I was in reserve outfit, and their paymaster is one of the guys who did it. Right. He said, oh, he said, Didn't, weren't you in on that? I said, no. I said, how do, how do you expect us to be in it? We're, we're in a, sitting in a hole in the ground, and we didn't have any money, so what the heck? Right. That, that, that quieted him down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you said once you got to France, you weren't too worried about money. Uh, once you were in France, did you take a leave back to England at any point? The leave I got back was when I got in Holland. Okay, when you were yeah, in Holland. Okay. Somewhere, in, somewhere in January, I think it was January, I got a leave to go back to England. That's what I, that's when I, I got my holiday. And I got I just got back in time and they launched a big attack, the, the, what they call the Spring Offensive, in February. Right. I got it in January and I got a leave to go back to... It was supposed to be a priority uh, for leave. So many, you get so many points for this appointments and that. But we had guys going on leave that were sitting in Brussels in the headquarters. They were getting their leave before we did. Hmm. So I mean, it, it was never, never really enforced enough, you know. Right. Because there's, we had, uh, we had, we had, not that our own people didn't, our own officers, right? They would, be, they would used to complain about our when we, we have people that are, are eligible with a number of points, and they deserved to get their leave before they had uh, run into some bad luck, you know. Right. Yeah. What did you do on your leave? Oh, you just uh, pub crawling. I remember I used to go. My favorite place was, was Sheffield, England. What happens? We were we were sitting there around, and you have a knife, fork, and spoon. And uh, the guy was saying, "This is when we before we went over to France. Where do you think I should go and leave?" And I looked at my life, and my life had Sheffield, Cutley. And I said, "How about Sheffield?" So we went to Sheffield. It was the best bet we ever made. <laughs> It was, it, was so a, pubs, a, it was quite an improvement. Oh yeah, it was improvement from uh, from the south south of England. You uh, you had to walk up the bar and buy a buy a pint of beer or something. But up in the Midlands in Sheffield, you press the button behind your, your chair and a waiter come over or a waitress. It was usually a waitress because the men were always either in the forces or some other work, and they'd uh, you'd order your your beer that way. And mostly, uh, mostly two pints was enough, you know. Mm-hmm. For me, that was plenty. Two pints. Yeah. Yeah, and then we, because you, you had to save money for having a little snack. Usually, you can get chips. You could always get chips. Mm-hmm. For French fries, you know. They yeah. they wrap them up in newspaper. 
<laughs> Lots of vinegar and salt. So your diet while you were on leave is basically chips and beer? Well, we actually, what you can get a bed and breakfast at the YMCA for one and six or one and tuppence. And you'd okay. have, uh, you'd have maybe uh, one, one shilling. You maybe have about, about 40 shillings for your leave. So if you have a, you go into a place and you just one and tuppence, you got your, uh, you got your bed and breakfast already. You already got your meal for the day. Yeah. And there's enough, what you call, they have British canteens, which are open 24 hours a day. That, that was for the, uh, the people working on, on in the factories in the, in England. They were, they were working 24 hours a day and they'd always had, had some place to go to eat afterwards. And the meals were substantial, and there's only a, one bob, or which one shilling for the meal. And they they allowed soldiers in. It was mainly for the workers, but they allowed soldiers in. And the Canadians, we we had a bit of a swagger. They sort of welcomed us in, in anywhere. So, and that's just because of the reputation. I don't know. Yeah, but we we were we were liked by uh, the Yanks and the English, and sometimes the English and the Yanks didn't along, but we were always along with everybody. <laughs> that was the Canadian way. I don't know. Yeah. Just the way we were. I'd call yeah. it swagger now. That's a word we picked up lately. So it must be okay, because yeah. we have the swagger, you know. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. So so you, you said you made it back to the line, to the front for the spring offensive. Yeah, we got. I got there before that big one. I think I was there two days before. And then they, they, they were saying there's something big coming up. And I remember the, the, uh, it was at night, all of a sudden, the whole it was quiet. Then all of a sudden, everything broke loose. Noise. I, mean, I don't know how long it was. It must be a couple hours or so. That was a February one. Mm-hmm. And they just kept firing and firing and firing and firing. And actually, what they were hoping to do, they were hoping that the ground was firm and soft. Not soft, but firm from the from the, uh, the winter. And they planned it all ahead of time, but... Tuesday, two days before the actual happened, we had a thaw. So that ended they had a tough time with the tanks and everything else, you know. So you the, think the, the weather was a real... The, the frost so... wasn't that deep there. It was not like here. You'd get frost some places up to four feet under, into the ground, right? Right. That's why you have so... to fix your basement up so you, you insulate it four feet from the top to the down. It's always that. Otherwise, it's a... You get frost on the on the walls, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you really think the weather was oh, beneficial? Oh yeah, oh yeah. it was bad. Yeah, it was bad because you know we had our we had the mortars, we had the three inch mortars, and what we had to do is uh, the casings for the mortars. You had three bombs in it, but the casings were not too bad, and you'd put the casings down and chomp on it, and then you put the base plate on top, and the first two or three bomb bombs you fire would would secure that the base plate of the mortar into the into the uh, into the the uh, ammunition empty ammunition cartons and then you get a firm base otherwise if you didn't uh, up in the Leopold Canal we didn't have any of that and uh, after you fired about 10 or 12 bombs the barrel went down about 6 or 7 sometimes a foot and a half and you had to move to pick it out and get the barrel out and then dig out the uh, the base plate and move it somewhere else hmm. Because we didn't have time to put any um, any of the uh, cartons down. Right. Yeah. So we, we were we were we were firing, moving and firing, moving and firing, and it, it, it would uh, it would go down about a foot foot and a half because 
See, a lot of the grounds were out of being <clears throat> secured from the, uh, from the from the ocean in Holland and in Belgium too. Okay. Some of the places yeah. we were at. Now that sounds somewhat chaotic, though, to have to be moving and, and fire and doing all this on the go. Like, like, how organized was it? Well, you had to be. It just—it's a habit thing. You, you know, you got to do it, and you do it. And you, of course, you had your your trenches. You you would try to say you were near a dike. You put the trenches in the dike because if you dig in the ground, the water level was only six inches below the ground because the dike was formed in squares and in the middle of the square they called it a polder and that's where they had their crops and so on and they reinforced any if they had any walkway for horses and wagons it was reinforced with extra earth or, or uh, stones and the rest of the time if you uh, if you if you try to fire the mortars it just sunk into the ground right right uh, and it's the same as for digging in it was pretty hard to dig in because, because of the the wet like again because of the frost and the weather is it still cold? It was cold and wet. More than right. they didn't have that much frost, except around Nijmegen in the winter time. But then they wouldn't have the deep frost like here, right? Right. It'd be cold and the snow was sort of a wet snow. Okay. Sort of a wettish snow. Like mm -hmm. a little aside, was uh, we're we're stationed outside of Grosbeek, and we we're digging near 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 a forest, and then the Word got back that somebody had found this place where there's, there was a big vats of wine, and so uh, I sent him a couple of guys from our platoon with a jerry can. You know what a jerry can is, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they sent a jerry cans and they went back to and said, "Bring a jerry can," and they had to make wake their way across this open area. Uh, there was an open area, and there was uh, canals here and there. And they had to get to, into this barn where all these vats were. And the first thing would be one of the first to get in there. And within about two hours, there were 15 other weights coming. They weren't supposed to go along that road. And they got shelled, and a couple of them had to, they, they, the truck went off the road and blocked the road. And finally, the MPs come along and blocked anybody from uh, from going out in that area, mm -hmm. except for the uh, infantry companies that were in that area. But they, that's how they, they got a lot of wine that way. <laughs> and this guy hid the, he hid the wine. He walked in the bush, and he hides in this big jerry can of wine. And they said, "Where was he?" She'll never find it. All we did was follow his footprints in the snow, because <laughs> he had a few drinks and he didn't realize he's, he didn't think about wiping out his footprints. <laughs> yeah, kind of funny. That was an odd little thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at, at what point um, through the spring there d did you really feel, or, or did you at all feel as though the momentum was on your side, and did you ever get the sense that the other side was on the verge of surrendering? What, what did did you really feel as though the end was coming, and that you guys were were getting to that point? We had the advantage. We knew this. We had the air power. And we had all we seemed to have more more stuff, uh, more tanks, more more guns, and everything else. Although we uh, they were they were pretty they were stronger defenders because they're defending their own country, right? Right. And they're, they're they set up. The, it's easier to defend than it is to attack. So they they're able to uh, set up ways of attacking, and they they're very good at that. The Germans were always good at that. 
they're well they're, they're well disciplined soldiers right and right. they uh they're always good at uh, with their mortars and their and their artillery and they they tend to move them move them around a bit have, have resistance pockets and they used the same some of the same tactics in Russia for the and it didn't work it worked for the Russians but it didn't work against the Canadians we sort of uh, had a way of uh, getting around them so they, this is one thing that we the German soldiers and the officers later on said that uh, some of the tactics they use in Russia they couldn't use against in, in Holland and Germany so you said that the Germans said that the tactics in Russia couldn't be used against you. Why was that? They said it wasn't as effective. Because I think it's because the Russian soldiers were, were different. They they had a different way of, uh, way I understand it, from what I'm reading it, they had a different, uh, 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 we have a more of a, they have more of a discipline, and they, uh, we often heard that, they had the front line, and if there's an attack coming in, they couldn't go back because the machine guns were behind them. Anybody, anybody tried to retreat, they'd wipe them out. Okay. You, you read about that, too, I guess. Right. Yeah. So that's what you heard. But, uh, they said the Canadians were best at going going forward, but they, and they but the not better. The English were better defenders. The Canadians always, uh, they said, they'd, well, they found it, they say, okay, it's no use taking the crap here to safer over there, and they move move to another place. <laughs> it's, it's, this is this is what we heard later on. It's, it's, they were intended. The discipline was was okay, but there's a lot of critique afterwards. You wonder where the how who how they can get the critique critique that way. Right. Because we were because Canadians are and Brits weren't natural born killers, were they? No. No, they're just uh, just people that were. Just trained to go in and and say kill or be kill, and you didn't have that same instinct to say uh, say when some of these people like the samurai or whatever you call these people, you know. Yeah. Um, now, and we talked on Friday about the end of the war. I, I'm curious with uh, sort of did did you take any souvenirs home with you from your your time in Europe? Well, what how I got it was uh, there was a hut. We were in a shack, not a shack, but a house. And uh, we had a picket outside, and they, somebody came along with a truck, a German German truck, and they, uh, this, this little guy from uh, this little Mennonite kid, he says, he says there's a German soldier out there. They got a truckload of uh, of uh, arms, and they want to know what to, where to take them. I said, what are they? He said, we don't know. He said, well, let's go and have a look. So I went out there and I had a look, and he dropped he dropped the back the back uh, tailgate. And here's all these pistols and everything else, and and a little bit further back is there the machine guns and there's rifles and everything else. But the the main stuff was all these pistols. And so I said, go in and tell the boys. And I meanwhile, I grabbed a couple, a couple of them, and, uh, and they, they everybody come out and help themselves. Then we told them where to go, take the rest of them back to up to headquarters. So we got our share of them before the, anybody else did. So, so I ended up getting a, I got yeah. a P-38 Luger and a, a two-shot Browning, a, a sort of a Browning that's a small, small caliber, .32, for putting in a lady's purse. That's what they said, for putting in a lady's purse. And but the, the, the P-38 is exactly the same as a uh, as a Luger. It's a Belgium Luger, the P-38. Okay. The Luger is a prize, a prize pistol, right? right? You've heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So and the P what did? What 
Sorry, go ahead. The P-38 is a, is a duplicate. It's the Belgium duplicate of the uh, Luger. Okay. What did you do with them? Well, I had a, I had a mine for a long time, and they, and they we, we kept them. And uh, when the war was over, we we come back. We're, we're ready to come back to England, and we got on a boat. They said anybody caught bringing back German Lugers, this, that, or nothing, would lose their their rank and lose all their what they call the rehabilitation pay. And people were throwing the things overboard, and I didn't throw mine overboard. I figured this is a threat. It's the same threat they made over in England on something else. Uh, and uh, that was the way the Canadians were. But uh, a few guys threw their stuff overboard. You know, they didn't, they didn't want to be caught with it. But I just uh, headed up my pack, and I, I stashed this pack up above, and there was a the rack up above, and I, I jammed everything up out there. But they, nobody come around to search for anything, so we were okay. So it made it home with you. Oh, see, there's a, they always made threats like that, you know. Right. <laughs> so they made it home with you to Winnipeg. Well, I got it home, and then I, uh, I, I had it home, and my, my rudder took it with him. He was in state in the armed forces, and he had it with him in in the uh, army camp, and he sh- he was showing around the people, and somebody stole it from his kit. Oh. Yeah, and I had also had an armband. Uh, a swastika armband, and I had a small uh, eight-inch blade uh, Hitler Youth dagger. They they wore on their belt. They had the Hitler Youth dagger. It had a swastika on the handle, bone handled, with a swastika right in the middle. And um, I got that from a uh, where the heck did I get that? Uh, we got into an old an old factory, <clears throat> and, and somebody had opened up a, a safe that was there. They always said there's nothing in it, and the, we went in. So there's all flags and everything else. But on the way out, I spotted uh, I spotted this uh, what the hell do you call it? A, not a filing cap, but something similar. So I, I went in and rifled that, and I reached behind, and sure enough, I picked up a pistol stuck wow. away at the back. Yeah. So I think say it lasted for for about a year until my brother somebody stole it off my brother. He was stayed in the armed forces. Right, and and same with the armband and the dagger. Well, that's the, the armband and the dagger, the dagger too, and the, he he kept them all. He took them with him because he was he sh- he showed them around in the camp, and right. uh, and he he had them in his his uh, barrack box, which was locked and everything else. But they rifled everything out of the bar bar barrack box, eh? Okay, so they so so everything was stolen. Oh yeah, they took yeah. they no, they took uh, any pistols or anything else. Yeah, they had a few things. He had mine. He had a he had a couple of his own souvenirs. They, they took those too. Okay. That's uh. There's lots of the guys around like that. They're not all uh. There's there's bastards as well as angels, right? <laughs> yes. Very true. Um, how long? I believe you said that you you've been back to to Europe. How long was it before you went back? I mean, from England. I mean, from Holland or yeah. Germany. Oh, we, we well any, anywhere that you served, really. Oh, we stayed there. We stayed in. The, they took us back to a place called Utrecht, and it was a town. But they never liked to leave infantry company, infantry battalions, soldiers in a town. So they moved us out to small villages away, and we had a place called Eda, E D E. We were there for about three months, and we uh, we had a couple of leaves, which is okay. I had a leave to. Antwerp, and we need to uh, Brussels for four days. 
Well, that, well by the way, I had another one in in uh, January 40, 45. Uh, we were in reserves, and they come around and they said, anybody to give us points for how many time, how long you've been in the active force from uh, from Normandy on? Mm-hmm. And uh, a bunch of guys that a bunch of people that hadn't uh, hadn't the same points. They got a bunch of leave, and there was hell to pay. And they come back, and they, uh, we got our leave. And I had a, a bit of time. You know, I spent a time in Antwerp, Belgium. And the real ball, because they, we had what they call the Hotel Metropole. And that was for NCOs and up, trick sergeants and up. And so when I they booked me in, I was in the same room as a, a, a sergeant from the American Army. And he had a lot of money. <laughs> they had more money than we did, right? Right. And, uh, and I had a I had a lot of francs and so on. So him and I buddied up, and uh, we we went to the different cafes over the next three or four days. He had to go back, and I I said, well, "Who do you belong with?" He says, uh, "He says it's the thirty, the fifth army of the Patton's army." Oh, I said, "Blood and guts, part Patton." He said, "Yeah, he said our blood and his guts." I'll never forget him saying that, you know. He was a sergeant. I never got his name. I knew his name at the time, you know, but, uh, right. but I never kept his name, or I guess I should have. Would have been a good idea. Right. Um, but what about what about after the war? So you come home. Did you ever have a desire to go back to to see all the like as a civilian to go back and and see all the the places that you had served? What I the desire was to. We had such a good time in England. Prior to going over to France, in other words, when he uh, there's pubs there and it, all those wartime, you can still enjoy yourself. You can go to a movie, you can meet up with a girlfriend at a dance or something like that. You know, there is that type of thing. And and I come back, it wasn't the same type of uh, it wasn't the same type of atmosphere. It was a mm-hmm. different type of atmosphere back in Canada. It was not the same way. Right. So how long did it take you then to adjust to to get back to civilian life? Or, or... Oh, I think when I look back, it must have been about even though I got a job and all that, it must have been oh about four or five years until yeah, at least that much time. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. And when I look hey, back man. at it, even though I had a good job and that, I was just a, and a lot of guys are the same way. You're, you don't really adjust that quick because right. you used to used to that. That swagger so much in the, in the, during the wartime and all that, you know, and then they come back and it's a different style. And I, I was, in the, you, I was did, in the fire did... department for five years, and they had the whole. Mm-hmm. What they did is they hired a, they made a whole new, whole new shift instead of a two shifts, they went to a three shift system, and they hired veterans. So they had competitions. You put your name in, and they had seven hundred names, and we got interviewed twice, and then they picked one hundred and forty, and I was one of the hundred and forty, and so. Meanwhile, some of the other guys had already got another job, but I, so I ended up getting. That's how I ended up getting being with them. I, I was working with my. I was going to be a partner in a, in a contracting business with my, with my brother-in-law, and I, I quit that and I, I went into the uh, fire department. Shift work. I didn't like the shift work, you know. Cause I used to play baseball, and I made the, I made the team, and then you'd be away for a week, and somebody else took your place. It'd be hard to get back in, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I used to hate that uh, the shift work, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you they, serve with the fire department for the rest of your years. career? Five, five years. years. Five and years. And then, and then, I what took, did you do? Well, that, that way, 
that way, that way. See, I didn't go back to school when I come back. I okay. only had grade nine when I joined up. So while I was on shift work, I was going to business college. I got my my. I could have got. You have this reestablishing credits. You're allowed two years after you get back to. They pay your way through college, through high school, and you had to have certain marks. Then you go to college, eh? But I never, I never got into that because I wasn't settled down enough. And I, so I ended up going in myself, and I got, uh, I got the uh, provincial certification for my high school, and I started to go taking classes at the university. Okay. And it, I went, to, I went full time at the university, but I. I I couldn't get paid by the Veterans Affairs. I found out later I could have, but I didn't know what the rules were. They said if you got a pension, disability pension, you then become eligible all over again to qualify for these benefits. But nobody told me about that. So I ended up having a job and uh, going to school at the same time. And what did what was your degree in? What, what did you study? What What did you study? What did I do? Yeah, like what what. Like yeah, what was your major? What did you study in, in oh, school when I, you went? Actually, uh, it was history, okay. history mainly. Uh, the mathematics, I, I had a heck of a time with mathematics. I always had that as a sub to to go back and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, be, yet, yet later on, I worked for Department of Finance. I used to go out and and um, do audits of, uh, of uh, offices and everything else. So, you know, it was a different style. It's not the same as doing it, doing mathematics, is it? Right. You're doing auditing of uh, of uh, budgets and so on and so forth. That was my job. I was what they call a field management officer. I'd, I'd review the budgets and I'd review the administration. I had to make an assessment whether the manager was good enough or not, whether how he operated, and you had to check on the supervisor were they doing their job and all that sort of. So that was what they call the field management operations, checking on everybody. In your post-military career, how often would you connect with the guys you served with? Were you active in the Legion? Did you go to any reunions? Did, did, you know, well, I did for a while, but I rejoined the uh, reserves, you know. I okay. spent, 15, spent 15 years, and I got my commission. I retired as a major. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, I was in the Signal Corps. I started off with one year in the infantry, and I moved from Winnipeg. Uh, no, from, moved from, I was in, down in Ottawa then. I moved from Ottawa to uh, to Toronto, and I continued on with my uh, signal corps down in Toronto. Then I moved to Belleville, and uh, they didn't have any uh, any room for me. I was a major then, so then uh, I went on supplementary reserve. I even tried to take a demotion and get a captain's rank, but it wasn't any anything available because I I liked going down there. You know, it was it was a good. Uh, I, you knew all the ropes, eh? Right. You didn't have to look in the books or anything else, and because I'd studied a lot on a on the manuals and knew where to look and all this sort of stuff. So it was uh, it was second nature to do things. Where a new guy come in and have to go thumb you through the manuals and all that stuff, I didn't I didn't have to do that. I knew I knew where everything was. Right. Yeah. But but during during that time, would you meet up with guys who who you served with back in in the war in the Second World War? Like, did, did you ha maintain oh. those connections during one, the rest of your life? There's one or two in Winnipeg that I did. Uh, a guy that was uh, a guy called Bill Coble. He was a dispatch writer in headquarters, and he came up in the fire department with me. And there's uh, there's three others that were in the fire department, 
And there's um, another couple of veterans who were in the first Hazars, which uh, they always were the ones that supported us with their tanks. And uh, we got to know them pretty good. And uh, they said, oh, we were always supporting uh, the Winnipeg's 7th Brigade. And said, he said, our squadron was always with the, located with the Winnipeg. So I got to know guys like that, you know. Okay. When it's, you look... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just said, it's once you're in, in this... Once you're in uh, the rapport, you sort of, when you meet other people in the services like that, there's no introduction because they're all part, one, all part of one game, and it's easy to converse. Right. There's always bastards around, too. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you avoid them, but most people were pretty easy to get along with. Did you ever have a tough time talking about your experience with your family or with, with people who weren't there? Was that challenging for you? No, because uh, I wrote a lot of uh, anecdotes, and they they know the anecdotes, and my daughter's typed them up over the years. It's not a blood and guts thing. It's a it's a general description of words like Carper K and about the shelling and the, and buried in a trench here and there, but it was nothing about uh, I shot this guy or shot that. It's all about generalities, eh? Right. And I, I I got anecdotes I wrote up a few, a few years back. I wrote them up, and I and I uh, they're all handwritten, and a lot of them where she typed them up, and uh, I had some typed up before. And I started off. Uh, what happened? I mean, uh, I was at Wilford across from. Did I tell you this? I said, as a manager of a manpower officer across from Wilford Lawyers University, and they did a talk about D-Day one time. I saw it in the. In the uh, Legion magazine was going to be done in Laurier University, and I went over and I got acquainted with the history teacher, and we, uh, he said, "Would you start writing these things down?" I said, well, I, I don't know, maybe he said, do, do anything." So I started writing a few little anecdotes down, and uh, he, he bought them into him. He says, "That's great." He said, "So I, I left him copies because he said he could always refer to them." You know, right. So, how would you say? that your service time in the military, what, how did that influence your life? Like, you know, did you ever think about how your life would be different if you hadn't served? Oh, yeah, because now you, you what you do, uh, you, I think maybe in the services like that, they learn to size people up, right? Okay. In groups, you sort of evaluate, you do that, you do that ordinarily, even in civilian life. But you're such a massive group in the military that you you learn to size people up. And even afterwards, when I see people, I compare them to, oh, he just reminds me of, of somebody you knew. Uh, you know, like uh, good points and the bad points. He said that they remind you. Uh, you sort of evaluate them and compare them to some of the good guys and the bad guys that you had been in the services with. Because you tend to, because you had a good time to evaluate people there. Yeah, I think you do it automatically. I'm saying evaluate. It sounds like I'm an analyst, but I'm not. I'm just trying to try to say it's a, you're, you're sort of figuring how people are and size them up and so on. Whether you you know whether you're going to be uh, getting along with them or not after no time. I remember a guy called. I was in the hospital in England, and after I came out of the hospital, I went to what they call a what they call a holding depot for rehab, and then you get back to your unit if you're lucky. And I met this guy Haggerty from the Regina Rifles, and we sat down beside each other. In a matter of two, three minutes, you think we've been friends for life. 
you know. <laughs> and we uh, we were there for we were together for a whole week, and we uh, a whole week because they started to take us taking the draft and saying and sending it after units. And I was supposed to go back with the same unit he was with. It was supposed to be another unit. And uh, and if, then they, in the last minute, they divided everybody up, and he went one way and I went the other. But him and I got along real good. I was uh, promised to write, when we pro- write, write once in a while, and afterwards uh, we stopped writing. Why were you in the hospital in England? Oh, it's the, we've been doing a, what they call a big exercise, Spartan. It was a re- actually they said it was a rehearsal for some uh, Montgomery was uh, Montgomery was taking a rehearsal for something in in the desert, North Africa, and he used all the all everything that he's using in Southern England, and all the moves and all the attack was that was supposed to be in the desert or North Africa. And we got through, and we're doing a lot of marching. And I'd never dropped out of a route much before. And they, what happened is we had, it was raining, and I, I had my extra boots in my small pack, in my other pack, and I, we did, I couldn't get my pack. So they, I had to turn these boots in, and they gave me a pair of English Army boots. And English Army boots had a toe cap on, where the British, the Canadian boots that were amalgam um, toe, and very easy. And the English boots was just like a walking with a walking with a walking on a on a brick, and uh, it sort of aggravated my heels. And I was marching along, and I thought, "Geez, they're bad." And I stopped for ten minutes. And the the uh, there was always a RAP regimental regimental uh, 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 regimental medical person coming along, a corporal or somebody later, or or just an ordinary guy. And I said, geez, I have been, have a look at my my heels. I said, they're all sore. So he took off my shoes, and I'd wore them about the size of a quarter. I wore the skin off both heels. So I ended up with what they call bursitis of the heels, and they sent me to this camp. Not the camp, not the camp but this, they sent me on a, they told me to wait beside the, uh, the sh- wait beside the road and uh, wait for the, uh, some other, some other corporal or something like that. And meanwhile, an ambulance come along, and they said, uh, anybody need a ride? I said, yeah, <laughs> I don't need a ride. <laughs> and then and I got in there, and they said, where the hell are you going? He said, well, you're going to the, uh, you're going to the number five general hospital. So I ended up in the general hospital, and I said, uh, I get in this ward, and they they call it the, there's there's two sides of the ward. There's, uh, there's uh, we're on one side, and there's the other side they call that was the, the side that belonged to the rear, rear admiral. We said, well, what, the, what do you mean it belongs to the rear admiral? He said, they all got hemorrhoids over there. <laughs> so that side belongs to the rear admiral. But our side was all uh, the lower extremities, and I was the young guy, and I said, what the hell? I said, what the hell is an extremity? <laughs> 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 he told me, I figured, I could think I knew all parts of the body, but what was extremity? I knew what the legs were in the Oh, he meant the the lower extremities were the legs. This yeah. particular side of the ward was all people with the legs, and the right hand with, with the feet. And I wasn't allowed to leave the bed, but I used to sneak out <clears throat> to go to the washroom. I didn't want to use a bedpan. Hmm. And they had a guy there that looked like Boris Karloff. Did you ever see Boris Karloff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he looked like uh, you know, <laughs> he, he sort of walked like that. He was the orderly. So I used to sneak out with my hands and knees and go to the bathroom and go to the bathroom. I opened the door 
And the first thing he said, did you go? I said, yeah. He said, was it hard? Was it soft? I said, what are you talking about? He thought I was, he thought I was one of the hemorrhoid cases. <laughs> but I'll never forget that. Like, you know, it hurt when it's soft. I said, no, 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 I'm okay. It's just my feet. He said, you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to stay in your bed and use a bedpan. I said, what do I want to use? I said, I want to use a bedpan. I can, I can get out here and go to the, uh, get some funny rules there. Right? Yeah. That's a, that was my big, big experiments in the, in the military. And the hospital was run by, uh, they had a complete unit from Winnipeg. They made up of doctors and nurses from Winnipeg, and they call it Number 5 General Hospital. So I was like at home being a Winnipegger. Right. And most of them, the people lived in Winnipeg and uh, chatting away with them. You, know, <laughs> you had to call them sir and ma'am, you know, that sort of stuff. Right, but it sounds like it was sort of a, a bit of a, yeah, like you say, a bit of a homecoming in England. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah it took a little took a little while, but... Uh, but I'll never forget this guy, Boris Karloff. He just started falling around like the... He had that walk about, you know, that stride, you know. Uh, yeah. A, a bit of a rock and all that stuff. <laughs> they, they say, here comes Boris. That was a... Somebody gave him a name and it stuck. <laughs> yeah. What do you want young people to to know about D-Day and about what happened during the Second World War and, and about... People like yourself who served, what what is important, do you think, for, for young people to really know about what happened? You know, you know that I, I go out and give talks, eh? Right, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, I deal with the young people all the time, whether it's school or cadets. And uh, I have my PowerPoint, and I, I have a few guys, pictures of guys who were killed in action and so on. And I also talk about D-Day and... Uh, and there's one fellow helped put up the PowerPoint with me, and I got a few. He's put a few pictures of the LCAs and little action pictures of D-Day and so on and so forth. And uh, I'm able to describe it as I go along, and I got this little light that can, like on one side, I can point the light at the at the at the uh, at the screen and tell them what it's all about. It makes it a lot easier. Before it used to four by six card, four by six cards, just like Ronald Reagan used to have. And that, <laughs> Just little notes on them and, uh, and and say things that that was that was too difficult because you you sometimes forget and maybe didn't want to talk. But the other one, if it's on PowerPoint, it's easy just to point at it and let the picture tell the story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's things uh, things work out better that way. Mm -hmm. And what is your message to to those people when you're talking? Well, it's, my message is to remember the. Uh, like especially when I come to pictures of the, the soldiers, whether they're a group of soldiers or p people I know were killed in action, I said these these are just ordinary guys like you see around now, but they had a different mission. They were they all volunteered and they all end up in action. Some were killed in action, and uh, some survived and some some were wounded. And I said uh, the uh, the talk about this. I'll say just one or two guys, and my favorite guy is my buddy, who's Jimmy Keir. Uh, so he's only 23 when he's killed in action. I said, uh, he didn't, he's a very nice looking guy, you know, he's very nice. He was, I like to horse play and joking around and all that sort of stuff, and a good natured fellow. And uh, I say, you know, he never had the opportunity to have a family, grandchildren, or anything else, you know, sort of talk like that. Right. It's just, uh, it's just he had to survive maybe 
Some some of the kids in his room could have been his grandkids, either here in Winnipeg or Vancouver. It doesn't matter where, but it could have been. I talk sort of like that. I ad lib, you know, right. off the cuff. So there you have it. My conversation with Jim Parks, who, of course, was there on D-Day back in 1944. And my thanks to Jim Parks for letting me speak with him, for being so gracious with his time. And it was actually it was his idea to talk again after the phone call initially dropped, not because I didn't want to, but because I did not want to impose on him. I left him a message. I said, thank you very much. You were so generous with your time. He, he, on the first call, he gave me 10 more minutes than what we had sort of scheduled. And for him to come back to me and say, no, I want to keep talking was just an incredible honor to me that, that he was trusting me with this and, and letting me uh, hear his stories and, and letting me share them with all of you. It was an incredible privilege. You know, we've done 132 now of these shows and this one was uh, really out of all of them. I, I'm proud of all of them. Uh, let me say that. And, uh, you know, with no disrespect to any of the other 131 shows, this one really does stand out in my mind as uh, uh, just an amazing opportunity and something that I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to do. And, and hopefully... You all enjoyed hearing Jim Parks's history and his story. And again, he is featured in the documentary D-Day in 14 Stories, which is airing Saturday, June the 8th on Global. Check your local listings for airtime in your area and for our friends outside of Canada. Just Google up D-Day in 14 Stories. You can find out about distribution where you are. So again, my thanks to Jim Parks and the entire team that helped set this up just uh, again just a, an absolute privilege and an honor for me to have a chance to speak with him hopefully everybody over there at Juno Beach and all the veterans from all the countries who are heading back there to the coast have a a a good time and that the commemorations go off well that's good weather all that all that stuff and that uh that that everything goes off as planned on Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode or you have any questions about it, please feel free to get in touch at historyslam at gmail.com or just about the show in general. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever and please do go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, subscribe if you have not yet. Give us some ratings and comments, all that good stuff that helps keep the show going. You can also head over to activehistory.ca for some more features articles that we have been writing about. So there's been a couple stories about the Second World War recently, so and particularly with D-Day. So do check those out. And with that, we'll be back with you in a couple weeks with another new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.